It has to do with inflation. It has to do with money supply. It has to do with the current state of tight inventories and the demand boom that we're seeing. You know, when I look at at, at the, the amount of stimulus, which has been about 23 trillion that has been injected into the system over the last 18 months. And then I try to pair that, we try to pair it, you know, with the amount of demand that's out there, we see it almost as a perfect storm. Welcome. This is Field Points of View with Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson, a podcast about macro markets and investing brought to you by Fieldpoint Private. Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson work for Fieldpoint Private and are investment advisors registered with Fieldpoint Private Securities. All opinions expressed by Cameron or Johnny or any podcast guest are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Fieldpoint Private. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you are encouraged to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions. It is possible that clients of Fieldpoint Private will have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Fieldpoint Private Securities is an SEC-registered broker-dealer and registered investment advisor and is a member of FINRA. Hello, and welcome to Field Points of View. My name is Cameron Dawson, and I am the Chief Market Strategist at Fieldpoint Private. I am thrilled to be sharing today's episode with you, which was recorded on September 29th, 2021, as it is incredibly timely given what is happening in commodity markets right now. In today's episode, I am joined by Brad Klein and Bob Hyman of Core Commodity Management. 2021 has been a strong year for the commodity complex, with the Bloomberg Commodity Index up almost 30%, besting the S&P 500 16% rally. Add on top of this recent headline-grabbing moves in things like oil and natural gas and coal, and the topic of commodities is at the forefront of many investors' minds. So in this episode, Brad and Bob lay out an investment case for commodities that centers on strong demand, stoked by things like huge stimulus support and reopening dynamics. And then they see this strong demand far exceeding supply, which has and will be, as they predict, slow to catch up to this demand. They think this will lead to a multi-year upcycle in commodity prices. Now, Brad and Bob are exceptionally qualified to have this discussion, given their work at Core Commodity Management. They described the firm during the episode, but I will give you a quick intro into each of them so you can see the robustness of their experience in this area. So let's start with Brad Klein. He is the co-founder of Core Commodity Management, which was started as the Commodity Asset Management Group at Jefferies in 2003 and became independent in 2013. Brad previously spent 13 years at AIG Trading Group with positions including being Executive Vice President and Head of Global Foreign Exchange and Commodities. As you'll hear in the episode, Brad helped build the Bloomberg Commodity Index, probably the most commonly used benchmark for commodity investors. Next, we have Bob Hyman. Bob is a managing director and portfolio manager at Core Commodity Management. He rejoined the firm in 2010 after being a PM with the Jefferies iteration of the fund from 2004 through 2006. Bob has been investing in commodities and commodity-related products for over 40 years. So with these quick intros, let's not delay any further and get the episode started. 
I present to you a conversation with Brad Klein and Bob Hyman of Core Commodity Management on Field Points of View. Brad and Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. I am absolutely thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you, mostly at a time like this. So why don't we start with a, an overview of what you do at Core Commodity Management, and that could be a really good jumping off point for our broader discussion of how you view the world of commodities. Okay, let me give the 30-second overview because I don't think you want to spend that much time on us. We run right now uh, $6.6 .6 billion. Um, the only thing we do is commodities, so we have a sole focus. Uh, we are, uh, frankly, one of the largest sole-focused uh, commodity, I'll use the term boutiques, out there. Um, we have two sides of our business, as Bob was explaining, um, the Investor Solutions Group, sub-advises for uh, two mutual funds and this collective investment trust. Um, and the other uh, five odd billion dollars um, is mainly made up of institutional clients, uh, which have included uh, public and private pensions, endowments, foundations, sovereign wealth funds, and frankly, uh, the richest people in the world. Um, we've been doing this, uh, frankly, uh, as long or longer than uh, anyone out there on the, in the planet, uh, Bob, as you'll hear, has uh, 43 years of experience actually investing in commodities. I have 38 years of experience investing in commodities. Um, we have 27 people in the firm. Um, the partners and the portfolio managers uh, in the firm have an average of more than 27 years of experience in the space. Um, it's been a uh, very, very difficult uh, last 11 years, and we finally are seeing the light where um, people are actually calling us and asking us how to get exposure to the space. Um, we sort of get credited for help pioneering, help pioneer the asset class, in that my partner and I created the, uh, the benchmark, the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Um, we co uh, uh, we redesigned the CRB index in 2005. Uh, and my partner was the first head trader for the GSCI for the Goldman Sachs index. So everywhere you and your clients, uh, if you were to Google us in the firm, you'll sort of see our fingerprints um, on or around, you know, the, the, three, the three benchmarks uh, involved with the firm. No, I think that is a fantastic setup and really exemplifies <clears throat> your expertise in talking about this topic. And as you said, that your phones are ringing more and more about commodities. We've seen commodities be uh, one of the best performing asset classes this year. And I know you all wrote a paper back in July titled The New Inflationary Backdrop. And you talked about how we're in this world of ultra loose monetary policy. We've had a lot of fiscal support into economies. At the same time, there's supply chain constraints and demand has just snapped back for goods faster than really anybody was expecting coming out of the pandemic. So could you talk more about this macro backdrop and why it has been just so supportive for those commodity prices? Sure. So I would say um, it's pretty simple. 
commodities for the record are a pretty simple business. Um, but I would sum up your question of um, it has to do with inflation. It has to do with money supply. It has to do with the current state of tight inventories and the demand boom that we're seeing. Um, I love the term revenge spending that people are using. I think it's great. Um, so it's really those, uh, I guess, uh, four factors. And, you know, back in the day when, when Powell, uh, Chair Powell um, had his first speech, we went back and, and counted and he mentioned inflation 59 times, although um, he kept saying he didn't think it was going to be a problem. Um, but he did say that when it, inflation reared its head, they would react and they thought they could react. And to me and to us, that was very obvious that they were going to be and that they were prepared to be behind the curve. Uh, and that's exactly what, in fact, they told us. Uh, they, I think they said something like they were waiting to see the whites of inflation's eyes before they react. Um, I guess the issue out there um, is that Chair Powell and the Fed generally are convinced that they can put the genie back in the bottle um, once it's escaped. But historically, that's really not that easy to do. And, you know, Bob and I grew up with Chair Volcker uh, and you saw how he had to raise um, interest rates dramatically in order to, you know, curb inflation. And I, I think, and we think that that's exactly what's going to have to happen eventually because inflation sort of feeds on itself. And when it begins, people really don't notice or they choose not to notice, then they begin to notice and then they start to panic and they start to hoard, if you will. Um, and that sort of creates this spiraling effect. And that's what we think is going to happen. We've already, we've been telling people literally since the beginning of, well, since the coming up on a year now that this was going to happen. Um, I'm not just saying that because we're right. Uh, it is happening. And now only yesterday did Chair Powell admit that it's happening and it might be getting away from them. So let's see what happens there. But I would say to you that, you know, Econ 101 says that more money chasing fewer goods leads to inflation. Um, and if you look back in history, I don't know if you're a history buff, but if you look back in history, you know, between 1966 and 1968, and then throughout the decades of the 70s, um, a very, very similar phenomenon happened. Right now, we are spending uh, more than we've ever spent since World War II. Um, and, and if you look back, you know, the industrial metals complex, I know you said you had history on it, that's up about 50%, and eggs are up about 50%, and energy's up about 50%. Um, and the most important things for you and your clients to realize is that the most correlated asset class to inflation is commodities. And that's more than real estate, and more than tips, and more than emerging markets and infrastructure and MLPs and everything else. It's about 0.74% correlated. Um, and I would say to you that, that, you know, Bob and the team and the entire firm has spent a lot of time looking about looking in 
and at the supply of money that's increased over the last 10 years globally by $50 trillion equivalent. $50 trillion. I mean, we, we are now throwing around the T word like I've never heard. Um, and that's going to continue. People are now starting to talk about tapering, but you know, right now we're spending just under $900 million an hour, um, the US government. And if they taper, okay, it's gonna be less, but they're still gonna be spending hundreds of millions of dollars an hour. Um, and that's gonna continue to fuel what's going on. Um, you know, when I look at, at, at the, the amount of stimulus, which has been about 23 trillion um, that has been injected into the system over the last 18 months. Um, and then I try to pair that, we try to pair it, um, you know, with the amount of demand that's out there, we see it almost as a perfect storm. And I would get, I would just mention that the last leg of that perfect storm is the amount of inventories uh, or the, or the small amount of inventories across the board, you know, energy is below its five-year average, as you know, um, base metal inventories are, are ridiculously small relative to global GDP. Um, grain inventories are, are draining down. Grain happens to be a weather event. So we need to take a step back there for a minute, um, but we're happy to talk about it. Um, and, and the other side of it is the underinvestment uh, that's gone on, not just within CapEx, which I'm sure Bob and myself will talk about, but the investment in the asset class. And the asset class has, you know, round numbers, about $250 billion of investment now. At the peak, it was about $750 billion. And um, when you talk about the investment world of endowments, foundations, pension funds, et cetera, they are significantly underinvested um, in the asset class. So you put all these things together and it, as you can hear in my voice, it gets us super excited uh, about the future. So one of the interesting things about this year's commodity rally is that it's happened with a backdrop of a stronger dollar. And going into this year, given the level of stimulus that you mentioned, a lot of people were concerned of dollar debasement. But because we've all been stimulating as a global economy, the dollar has actually been a lot more resilient than people have expected. So when we think about then the rise in commodity prices, this seems to have all been about supply and demand, just not how you're pricing it. So how do you think about then the path of the dollar? Because it would be interesting if you were to see dollar weakness, it'd almost be like, like flinging lighter fluid onto, onto these commodity rallies if we were to see the dollar weaken. So what could cause that in your view? So I'm happy to attack that one a little bit, Cameron. Um, so Brad laid out the, the macro background uh, pretty well and putting some of the numbers to it. We still have 120 billion per month uh, that the Fed is uh, uh, adding uh, on a QE basis. And now, right as we're speaking, uh, Congress is trying to determine what it's going to be doing with um, a $1.2 trillion program uh, for uh, infrastructure uh, that's already been passed by the Senate and a 3.5 to perhaps as much as $5.5 trillion human infrastructure, which will overlap on that uh, as well. 
Um, you talked about the, the key issues for uh, commodities, which is really supply and demand. The macro is highly supportive of uh, all of that uh, because of uh, the amount of money uh, supply that's uh, being generated by all of this. Um, uh, but it really boils down to the fundamentals. And Brad touched on this in terms of um, the CapEx deficit that's been going on uh, in various commodities. And perhaps uh, the area that uh, is most um, emblematic of this is the oil and gas industry. Um, if you go back to um, uh, when crude oil was peaking in 2007, 2008, uh, at around $145 a barrel. Uh, everybody and his brother, it seemed, uh, wanted to get into the business. Uh, and banks uh, and uh, other uh, lending institutions couldn't um, fund projects fast enough. That led to a number of uh, different excesses uh, in the marketplace. Uh, and we saw crude oil uh, have a, a secondary peak uh, uh, after the financial crisis. Um, got up above $100 a barrel, and then uh, the Saudis uh, decided to uh, rain on the parade a bit uh, back in 2014. Uh, and we saw crude oil go down uh, rather steeply uh, in 2016 due to all of those excesses. We thought we were uh, possibly done with that. Uh, and then we got a secondary and much more powerful um, and uh, harmful uh, downdraft uh, in the lockdown and COVID in the front part of 2020. What that has done is damaged um, the idea that uh, uh, you could uh, invest in oil and gas willy-nilly uh, without uh, much in the way of risk. Lenders are now shunning uh, investment uh, in oil and gas. Even the producers themselves are uh, pulling back in terms of uh, how they're uh, investing. Um, and it's no longer good enough to just bring barrels uh, uh, to market. We've proven that we can do that with some of the new techniques, fracking and horizontal drilling, um, but we have to do so profitably. And I think that uh, the discipline that's been uh, injected into these markets uh, is something that um, uh, even OPEC and OPEC Plus uh, have now uh, joined in on. Um, what that means uh, really is that uh, we have yet to see um, uh, the amount of investment that's necessary as the economy rebounds, um, this sort of reflation trade that uh, people have referred to. That's natural. Um, but we've also have uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a demand that's out there that is directed uh, either by um, mandate uh, from uh, some of the political authorities to try to get us uh, to green energy. Uh, and we're seeing some of the consequences of that uh, right now uh, in Europe, where uh, natural gas uh, is um, uh, waning in terms of uh, the supplies. Um, demand uh, is through the roof. And we're not even into wintertime yet. And people are a little, a little bit panicked about uh, how they're going to uh, satisfy their energy needs. They even have gas lines uh, now in the UK. Um, and BP uh, just mentioned uh, last week uh, that uh, roughly a third of their stations had run dry uh, due to uh, all the buying that's been going on. Um, with all of this, as uh, uh, we will tell you, um, it takes time uh, for all of these commodities to come to market. There's an investment process. 
Uh, there's a discovery process. Uh, and even with modern technology, we still come up with dry wells uh, every now and then. Um, so that um, uh, the uh, amount of supply that can come on uh, in a short period of time uh, is not nearly enough to uh, satisfy uh, the short-term demand. In commodity markets, especially on the future side, we see that uh, manifest in what's called uh, backwardation. Um, that backwardation or nearby prices above the deferred, you think about it, it's like a rheostat on your home um, uh uh, thermostat. You turn it up when you want more heat or turn it down when you want uh, things to cool off. And that is essentially a demand on uh, energy. Uh, if you don't have it, it's kind of scary. Um, and right now we don't have those supplies uh, to uh, call upon uh, at the moment. So it's causing uh, a turn uh, in commodity prices on the future side, the, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which was um, well supplied uh, going back uh, a few years ago. In fact, oversupplied, uh, I would say, uh, was running at about a six to seven percent um, uh, headwind. Contango, uh, it's called, where the nearby prices are below deferred. Uh, right now, it's a positive yield of roughly six to seven percent, uh, which means that if prices do nothing, um, even you know from these levels, uh, you'll still earn about six or seven percent within. Uh, a fund that uh, has uh, attachment to uh, instruments that the Bloomberg Commodity Index has. Um, it also means that uh, we're much more vulnerable to price spikes um, because if uh, something should happen, like uh, we just uh, experienced in, uh, uh, in the UK, uh, natural gas prices went from a pretty docile uh, $2 or $3 per MMBTU up to 25 plus. Uh, and recently, we've seen uh, our levels go up above $6. Um, so we're not in a, a very good position from a consumer point of view. Uh, and now it's time, you know, th these are cyclical uh, instruments. Commodity markets have uh, booms and they have busts. But we've gone through uh, what I think uh, has been a, a pretty major uh, bust on the commodity side. Uh, and um, because of that, uh, supplies are going to be stretched uh, and demand uh, may percolate uh, much more rapidly uh, in here. 2021 was supposed to be the, uh, the year of global synchronized uh, demand. Uh, it got upset by a lot of different things, including the, the Delta variant. Um, I was listening today on the radio, and uh, I agree with this, that uh, perhaps 2022 uh, may be the reimposition of that uh, uh, global synch uh, synchronized uh, uh, event. Uh, and if so, um, it's going to be uh, an inter interesting ride from the commodity side. It's not just mm -hmm. oil and gas, it's also base metals. And, and we can discuss that in the next segment. So that raises the big ultimate question, which is how long this lasts and if this is another super cycle. And as you said, you, every bust sows the seeds for the next boom because you've underinvested and commodities are long cycle investments. So you can see your demand run up, but if it takes you nine years to build out a new mine, you're going to see price increases and why we you know, tend to see these bigger boom bust types of, of cycles. 
So then the question of how long it lasts me, it really gets down to if the Fed decides that they can't tolerate this inflation any longer and other central banks do the same and they move to tighten policy, is the supply and demand imbalance that we're seeing um, enough to make commodities impervious to a tightening cycle? Because we know the Fed dot plots are already, you know, you're already starting to see hawks move their way up and that the forward expectations for rate increases are being pulled forward to 20 from 2023 into 2022. So does that mean we only have six months more of this? Or are you of the camp that this is a super cycle and we have a multi-year up cycle ahead of us in commodities? So I'll say that, okay. <laughs> I'll take that. So, yeah. so we don't really use the term super cycle, um, but if you go back and you look uh, over history, it's typically been, let's say an eight to, eight to 10 year cycle of the boom side of the boom bust. Um, and there's a great piece that I can send you after we have our, our chat here, um, which says that what we're going through now lines up almost perfectly with the uh, previous boom times, if you will. So um, specifically, um, the best example is really coming out of 9-11 and what happened between <clears throat> 2000 uh, and 2008, and which only really got derailed from the, by the financial crisis. Um, we don't know how long it's going to last, uh, but we have an opinion. Our opinion is this is not a six month issue. And we've been saying this now for a year that it's not a six month issue and it's a multi-year issue. And if you go back and you look at, you know, what's causing um, the 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 only the start of, you know, price movements, it's things like wage inflation. And Cameron, if you go back and um, if I said to you, Cameron, instead of making twenty dollars an hour, I'm going to pay you thirty five dollars an hour, so I can get you to come to work. If I went back to you and said, here's $20 an hour, you're going to quit. So wage inflation is not going away, in, my, in our view. Um, the, the issue with supply and demand, as we've started to sort of unpack it, doesn't go away quickly, right? It takes three years, as you know, to um, create another uh, aluminum pot smelting line. It takes... Um, depending upon brownfields or greenfields, it takes four to eight years for new copper mines to come online. And that's with everything that we're talking about of, in terms of demand is, is not going away. If in fact, it's, it's, it's going to increase in, is our view. So we see that, and we get asked this question all the time, like how long is, is this just something that's, that's I'm not, I don't want to use the term transitory, but is this just short term, or can this be with us for a period of years? And succinctly put, it's the latter. It's, we see this as a three to five, it could be like the other super cycles, which have been eight to 10, but we certainly see three to five years. Um, you know, Bob had touched, Bob had touched on the CapEx coming out of um, the, even the energy market. And that number, I think this was, this is a few months old, but was close to 500 
uh, billion dollars over the next five years of ca energy capex is being has been removed, and that that when oil prices were lower. And interestingly enough, oil prices have gone from sixteen to you know seventy five, and oil production hasn't gone up any. And that's a perfect example of capex has been removed, and. You know, as you know, ore grades are going down in, in copper uh, pretty dramatically, but demand is going up very dramatically. So those kinds of things make us believe and have confidence in, you know, we're not even close um, to ending this. In fact, we would say, Bob used the analogy, he's, he's gone off of the baseball anal analogy and he's on to the golf analogy. And he's sort of on, he's saying we're sort of at the sixth hole right now of, of 18. So. Uh, we've got a lot of room to go. The big difference between today and the 2000s, or two big differences, uh, one is that the dollar lost 40% of its value over the course of, of that decade. So that obviously was a big boost to help the commodity cycle. And you also had the industrialization of China, which the stats that they used more concrete in a four-year span during that time than the U.S. did than during the entire 20th century. So without a, a demand pulse from China industrializing and getting back to that dollar question again, because that was a huge part, not just in the uh, uh, in the 2000s, what then is, is the demand underlying, other than just the normalization coming out of the pandemic and kind of the re renewing of spending, but is ESG kind of green energy enough to be that source of demand that helps us get to that multi-year cycle? For certain commodities, I would say yes, but that's not really it. And, and I, Bob spoke about the dollar side, but let me just give you my view. You cannot, in my opinion, increase the supply of money um, by 2x in 10 years. Um, by uh, more than 3x in 15 years and expect the dollar to hold, the dollar slash currencies to hold their value. It's, again, we're supply and demand guys and gals here, okay? There is so much more supply of dollars out there ever. And, and I think people are not focusing on it correctly. Um, you know, the $5 trillion in money markets and the $2 trillion in savings in the United States, there, there's, there's so much more money out there that when people have it, they spend it. And when they spend it, demands goes up. Um, you're right that, that, you know, the dollar has shown some element of strength this year, just some. It was weaker earlier in the year and now it's slightly up on the year. A lot of that is, you know, interest rate ARB, frankly, because of the trillions of dollars of EU debt that's negatively, um, forgetting about, um, that's nominal negative yielding, forgetting about the real side of it. There are a lot of players out there that are buying U.S. debt at, you know, 10 year at 155, 160, um, unhedged. Because if you hedge it back into, into currency, it doesn't work, right? So if you think about that, when the, uh, this is our, our firm view, when the dollar eventually does depreciate because of everything I've already said, 
there's going to be this negative gamma associated with it that people are going to turn around and say, oh my God, not only, you know, has the debt gone bad, which I do think like buying bonds here, I think is a huge mistake. Buying fixed income here is a, a huge mistake. I think, uh, I think the stat came out that more than three quarters of the high yield bond index are trading at negative real rates of return. And I would ask you to marry that with Bob's comment, which is you can make, it does, it changes every day and we're not guaranteeing it stays this way, but you can make six to 7% on your commodity investment, real, six to 7%. And three quarters of the high yield index is trading negative real. That Those two things don't make sense to me. But if, you know, rates are going to go up. Either rates are going to go up because the economy, in my view, it's because the economy is getting better or because the Fed's going to have to hike them to fight inflation. So if they go up, what's going to happen to the price of those bonds? We know that it's going to go down. So you're going to lose there. And then when, when people are decide to get out of their U.S. denominated, unhedged U.S. fixed income, and they have to either sell that bond, which will make rates go up higher, or... They hedge it, which is, means selling dollars and buying euros or whatever currency, yen, whatever happens to be in. That could create, Cameron, a, a negative gamma dollar environment that we haven't seen for a long time. So we kind of just look at that as that would be an interesting and fun tailwind if that were to happen. Yeah, it's like the accelerant on all these supply demand dynamics. Exactly. I think your point on the kind of slowness of supply to come back online or to increase to meet this higher demand is very interesting in the context of how the ESG is really putting a dampener on how much investment is going into the commodity space, either to meet environmental goals, but also from a capital return perspective of these mostly oil and gas companies being forced to live within their cash flows and return excess capital to shareholders instead of reinvesting in the business. And why we haven't seen things like rig count keep pace with the, with the higher oil prices. So you know, are you seeing this dynamic of that in investment might have been higher in a different time when we didn't have these kind of new mandates from an ESG perspective? And that's kind of exacerbating these supply demand issues? Absolutely. So uh, I think yesterday, one of the, uh, uh, the second largest uh, Canadian uh, pension fund uh, just announced that they are going to withdraw uh, all of their uh, investments uh, in anything to do with oil and gas, which is really strange because Canada is one of the largest producers. Um, but uh, people are being incentivized to try to move to the ESG or green side, um, either by hook or crook. Uh, and uh, we think it's uh, something that uh, is a little abrupt uh, let me just go back and address the, the China issue for a second, because you're correct in, in uh, uh, your assessment in terms of what how important China was in the early 2000s. And it's not that I want to diminish uh, China because they're still a huge player uh, on the commodity front. But one of the things that we learned from COVID uh, was that relying solely on the lowest cost producer for anything is not necessarily a recipe for success. When we saw um, 
even things like toilet paper and paper towels uh, diminish on our, our store shelves, we realize that we need to have other sources of those same materials. Now, China uh, actually provides a lot of things like rare earths uh, that are needed for uh, the chip industry and um, uh, various uh, components for electronics, even uh, automobiles. Um, but now the European car makers are going after uh, Australia to try to supplement uh, and substitute for uh, some of this, you know, heavily leaning on uh, one particular producer. Um, it's a change in attitude, uh, I think, from going from, again, the lowest cost producer to something that's reliable and safe. Um, there's a cost to that, uh, but people seem to be willing to pay that. Again, to Brad's uh, issue, um, we have a lot more money sloshing around uh, in people's pockets, and they're trying to spend it strategically. Um, but it still doesn't um, you know, uh, deflect from the fact that fundamentally, we're in such a seriously compromised environment right now in terms of supply. Um, and that's not going to happen by magic. And I know that so many of us have uh, had our attention uh, drawn from uh, everything that the internet uh, you know, can provide us uh, almost instantaneously. You, you buy something and it's there a couple hours or the next day. Um, that does not happen uh, on the commodity front uh, in any capacity. So, you know, we have uh, unfortunately made our own beds uh, in this and uh, it's gonna take a while for this to, to play out. There are a lot of supply constraints that will work themselves out, but the ones that won't are the ones that take capital and time uh, uh, to write themselves. Um, and price is a major incentive uh, so that, uh, you know, we think that these uh, investments are going to be very lucrative uh, for people to get into. Uh, as, I, as, as Brad mentioned, it's still early in the game. Um, we've seen uh, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, uh, which has a range uh, going back. Uh, the, the peak was around 243 in 2007, 2008. The low uh, got to an intraday low of uh, below 60, close to 57, uh, back in March 18th of 2020. Today, as I look at the screen, uh, I'm just looking across right now, it's trading 100 even. So we're much closer to the bottom than we are to the top. Uh, and in fact, the median price uh, over the last 30 years for that uh, Bloomberg Commodity Index extrapolated uh, is somewhere between 125 and 128. So we think that's the first stop that you know, involves a 25 plus uh, return, uh, percent return uh, for the entire index. Obviously, some commodities will do better than others. And that's just to get to some sort of normalized level without the excitement uh, and some of the momentum uh, that uh, we've seen in, in some other asset classes. Some of the really differentiated work that you do, all, all your work is differentiated, but where you all have really 
uh, carved a niche is your work on the cost of production and how that feeds into uh, the eventual rise in prices for, uh, for commodities. So maybe talk about that framework about cost of production and what you're seeing. We you mentioned declining ore grades uh, at the beginning of the call. And so maybe talk about that framework and how you see that adding to these increases in prices. Yeah, I would say that, that, the, that the work we do um, and we're happy to send it to you if we haven't already um, on the cost of production has really, it really helped us um, over the last say five years as prices have continued to you know, deteriorate before this recent move. <clears throat> um, and it's a lot easier to, to apply that in um, decreasing price environments than increasing price environments. Because if, you know, if copper is trading 30% or nickel was trading 40% below its marginal cost of production, it's pretty easy to feel comfortable that, you know, it, it might be medium term, it might be short term, but long term prices are not going to stay there, right? Because people are not going to continue to produce anything for a loss over the long term. Um, so we, we study this um, commodity by commodity, let's call it with uh, roughly, you know, 28, 29 different commodities. And we also study it on an index equivalent level. So what the BCOM Bloomberg commodity in it, where the Bloomberg commodity index is trading relative to its marginal cost of production. Um, you know, you brought up again, the declining ore grades that I brought up, but what, what, when prices eventually get to, you know, significantly higher, whether it's, I have a very strong view, it's not going to be 20 or 25%. It's going to be multiples of that. Um, then we're going to sort of switch from, okay, we know they're trading higher than the cost of production. And then the other two factors that you've already mentioned, Cameron, click in, which is demand and what's happening with demand and supply. And, you know, there's those two things right now are moving in opposite directions. And, a great example of that is the copper market. Um, the declining ore grades are going to remove roughly 2 million tons of copper by the year 2030, which is about 10% of today's total mine production. But that's happening exactly at the same time where the electrification and EVs and hybrids are boosting the amount of copper by four to five times per vehicle. So you have, your, your viewers can't see my hands going in opposite directions, but you have these two opposite forces that could potentially create, you know, not a 9,500 metric ton per price copper, but multiples of that, right? Because when you need, you know, catalytic converters are a great example. Um, back in the day, palladium, in the 90s, palladium went from, $90 an ounce um, to roughly over $1,000 an ounce. And palladium is a very small input into um, a car because you need, back in the day, you needed an ounce of it to produce a catalytic converter. So whether or not that cost an extra $900 didn't matter, but what mattered was if you didn't have it, you couldn't build the car. And so it made it, it made and it continues to be, especially in this new ESG world in which we live, 
a super important part of building a car. And what I would tell you is everything that Matt and Bob and I invest in or sell, people consume. They eat, they eat it, they drive it, they wear it, whatever it happens to be. And you need it to live. And substitution, frankly, is very, very limited. So when I see overall taking, this is a long-winded way of not answering in fully your, your question about cost of production, because it's less meaningful when prices are rising. It was very helpful when prices were falling. And it gave us and our clients, um, as I said, great comfort um, knowing that prices could not really stay there. But um, I, I would tell you that the supply of almost everything, um, especially as ESG is kicking in, uh, stands a great chance of, of decreasing when the demand, as the demand with almost everything, stands a very good chance of increasing. That again makes us really bullish about you know our space. And without without spending too much time on it, one of the uh, interesting things that will give you an idea about potential is, you know, this concept of fracking, right? So <clears throat> today, as we sit here today, Bob knows the exact number, but U.S. production of oil is about 10, 10. 11, 7 million. 11, one today. 11, one. Okay. 11, Which one is ex today. almost exactly what it was at the close of uh, the year last year. And it's exactly. down and it's down more than 2 million barrels a day from the peak back in February of 2020. Okay, stay with me, Bob. So mm -hmm. out of Bob's number of roughly 11 million barrels a day, about eight of it is coming from fracking. So eight out of the 11. So right now, France, Scotland, Bulgaria, and Germany have all outlawed fracking, right? And if you think about what ESG is doing and you think about electrification and Kesta Depot getting out of, of fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. If the U.S., and especially because we have a Democratic Party, but if the U.S. was to slightly ban fracking, even on federal land, but leaving it up to private to do what they want, I'm pretty sure the oil price would be $125 in a blink. It really would. And, and, and that has an enormous effect on everything else, right? Because the oil energy is a huge input into all these other um, production of other commodities. So, I mean, eventually the world is gonna come in my view to the conclusion that, you know, contaminating the, the earth with arsenic and mercury and hydrochloric acid and lead and formaldehyde might not be a great idea. Like it just might not be good to put that into the earth and the um, earthquakes that are happening um, in Ohio uh, and in Oklahoma um, might not be a great idea to keep pushing um, um, various chemicals and, and sand and water into the earth. If that happens, and no one's even talking about this really, Cameron, you know, it could be really inflammatory, as you would say, throwing gasoline on the fire. So the supply demand thing is, is in my opinion, much more important than the cost production 
um, study, but we still keep an eye on it every single day. And we can tell you every single day where the index is trading relative to its cost of production. I mean, at the same time that really since oil prices cracked in 2014, after trading at like up to $108 a barrel, they cracked and traded down to what, $28 or something like that by the time we were in, in January 2016. You also saw the oil majors stop long cycle investment because their investors just said, this doesn't make any sense anymore at oil sub 50 bucks. And so it's been since 2015 to today that you actually haven't seen that kind of long cycle investment in oil kind of as well exacerbating this, which is why we rely on fracking so much for oil output today. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing, and I'm curious your perspective on this, because I remember following that crack in oil prices, the industrial recession of 2015, a lot of the commodity related companies said enough is enough. We are so sick of cycles. We want to try to put discipline into things. And so you had people like Kat saying, we're not going to be the tip of the bullwhip anymore. We won't sell mining trucks to anybody just because they want them because they were buying thousands of them at the peak in 2011 and we're buying tens of them at the bottom in 2016. That's not good for us. It's not good for our shareholders. So we're going on managed distribution. So as we've gone through this time of finding discipline through cycles, it's almost as if we've created our own monster of underdevelopment that then means that we really can't get away from the fact that these are cyclical businesses and that eventually that, that discipline is going to have to take a step back to get the kind of capacity we need to service demand. So you mentioned, Cameron, that um, you know, you've seen a lot of uh, different companies, especially on the energy side, that are um, instituting share buybacks, mm -hmm. Um, taking care of their shareholders uh, first uh, and not investing in, in long cycle projects. I would say to you that that's, that's one of the things that's constraining uh, a lot of the uh, investment uh, right now. They realize uh, that um, uh, the, the lenders are not so fast to, to come back to these markets. Uh, they don't want to have a long-term project that's going to be upset somewhere down the line, uh, either through some sort of uh, political mandate or whatever. They are waiting for the marketplace to sort of scream at them, you know, where are you? And uh, uh, I think the example that we're seeing right now in Europe is one that uh, we should really take heart uh, and, and listen to. Um, we're not going to get rid of green energy, uh, of uh, conventional energy anytime soon. The demands and the scale and the scope that we're talking about uh, to transition to green energy is overwhelming uh, in terms of uh, the amount of copper, zinc, uh, tin, uh, all of these different aluminum. Um, uh, Brad mentioned it takes four times the amount of copper uh, in an EV. Uh, and even some of the other alternatives, whether we go to hydrogen cell, um, you're still going to need all of the different uh, steel and aluminum framework for these uh, vehicles uh, in order to transition from what we currently have in, on the conventional side to something that's uh, uh, more green. Uh, I don't think any of our politicians and uh, people outside of this small uh, experienced commodity <clears throat> community 
uh, have an idea of, of what it's going to take and how blessed we are really to have uh, the uh, energy complex that we currently have, that we lean on so heavily um, to substitute uh, green energy is a perhaps, you know, a, a promising and uh, a proper idea, but um, I think we're doing it in a rather clumsy fashion right now. And uh, I think the consequences are going to mean higher uh, energy prices going forward, because even even to dig for some of these uh, base metals that are necessary uh, for the EVs, uh, you're going to need a boatload of energy, conventional energy to do so. And to ship them around, right? right? So, you know, the energy cost to transport these commodities around is also a big factor in in the end cost of the commodity itself. Huge. And it's not their fault. You know, the, the politicians who are saying, you know, a three and a half trillion or a five and a half trillion, or we want to go to ESG, whatever it happens to be, they don't understand. It's not their fault that they don't understand the dynamics and the fundamentals of the metals that are, it will take to um, satisfy those budgets, right? And I mean, you probably know this because it was your past. The entire notional value of 100% of the inventory on the LME today is $8 billion. 100% of the inventory is $8 billion. And as Bob is throwing around one and a half trillion, three and a half trillion, Everything that they need is on the London Metal Exchange, and there's just not enough of it. And if you say that nickel demand is going to grow by 40% over the next five years, and alley demand is going to grow by 20% over, over the next five years, many of it, much of it coming from solar, we sit back and we just say, we don't know where the supply is going to come from. We got the demand side, right? But where is the supply going to come from? Because you're just not going to make it tomorrow, as Bob said. You know, it's going to take years. And and now, you know, with all of the not in my backyard nimbyism of adding new supply, I mean, then you you get the question of of like you said, where does it come from? Because that new supply isn't necessarily compliant with the end environmental goals anyway. Right. So, and, kind of and we don't have the answer. We don't have the answer. And frankly, um, when you talk about the energy side, and you look at uh, the amount of banks um, that have withdrawn from the financing of these projects, which you, know, you can look up yourself, but there's been numbers, numbers and numbers of them. Granted, private equity has sort of taken some of that slack up, but if there's no capital and it takes time, or there's less capital and it takes time, that's also adding fuel to the fire. Yeah. So we've talked about oil and gas. We've talked about the base metals. Are there any other areas within the commodity complex that you think that we should take a moment to, to discuss? Um, I, I'll go first, Bob, if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Could just jump in. So one thing that we kind of look at is um, luxury commodities. Um, what we mean by that is, you know, coffee, sugar, cocoa, some of the meats. Uh, we've been big proponents of them, even through the pandemic. Um, China's, China's become, I think, the largest online purchaser of chocolate. Um, and you look at, at, at crops like coffee, you know, Brazil had, um, I think it was its first ever frost, significant frost. And then they've had 
incredible droughts. And there was just a, uh, a story that, that confirmed this on Bloomberg, where, if, where they basically all the coffee trees are, are brown and you can literally crush them, right? So that the, the supply of coffee will empirically be less than um, we've seen for years and years and years and years. And that comes on the heels of, you know, we used to say back in the day that, you know, China was opening up one new Starbucks every 15 hours. We've been talking about this for years within our firm. But now what's happening is Starbucks, and they're continuing to do that. But now what's happening is they're moving into India. And I guess between China and India, that's about 2.8 billion people, right? So you have 2.8, some fraction of 2.8 billion people which have never been coffee drinkers, all of a sudden, and you know, it's probably one of the greatest drugs in the world, you give it to people and they just keep drinking it for the rest of their lives, for, for the most part. Um, you, you've got less supply because of weather, we don't really control that. And you have increasing demand going forward as populations continue to increase, but more importantly, as, as areas around the world become wealthier, they consume more luxury goods, they eat more meat, they drink more coffee, they drink, eat more chocolate and things like that. And it's just not easy to increase over the short to medium term, for sure, the amount of supply of those kind of luxury goods. So within, within our um, products, um, we have the ability um, to add commodities which may not necessarily be in one specific commodity index um, into the mix. And so, you know, Bob and the investment team spent a lot of time on, let's call it luxury commodities. Any you want to add, Bob? Yeah, sure. So uh, that's a good uh, sort of segue into the, the, the last section uh, or last sector uh, in the commodity markets, which is uh, precious metals. Um, one of the things that we've found with people that are uh, dealing in the commodity markets is that they tend to make two mistakes. Um, number one, they over-concentrate, and number two, they over-lever uh, in commodities. It's something that we don't do uh, within any of the investments that we do within the firm, uh, and especially uh, on the uh, public uh, side that, uh, that I'm uh, involved in. Uh, the mutual fund that we have is uh, unlevered, so $100 in gives you $100 of exposure to commodities, no more. Um, and is diversified all the way through. Why is that important? Um, this year, uh, I think, as Brad mentioned, uh, inflation has been on the tips of just about everybody's tongue. Uh, and one of the reflexive responses uh, in the commodity markets has always been to go to gold or precious metals uh, as their uh, deflector uh, for, the, for that. If you did that, you lost. Gold is down 8%, almost 9% today. Silver is down more than 18% on the year. Uh, and platinum is down uh, 13%. So people's hair would definitely be on fire if, if that's all that they expressed uh, in the commodity markets. But the way that we are benched, uh, and I think the way that most people should approach uh, the commodity markets is not in one particular sector or certainly one commodity, and in an unlevered uh, way, uh, and this enables you to take advantage of the movement uh, in BCOM 
um, which now, you know, as I look out, uh, up more than 28% on the year, including today's action. Um, so you've been able to ride out uh, what has been a bad market uh, or disappointing market, let's say, uh, in the precious metal side. Uh, and yet we do think that the fundamentals there uh, are also um, constructive, especially for some of these uh, so-called white metals, uh, silver and platinum, uh, which have industrial use as well as this um, uh, precious metals quality uh, as well. Now they're being taken to task because of the strength in the dollar perhaps, and the idea that interest rates uh, may rise uh, over time. But um, I think that some of their um, uh, store of wealth uh, qualities may come into play uh, and the same types of dynamics uh, that affect uh, supply and demand in other commodities are also going to affect things like silver uh, and platinum um, because of their uh, industrial usage uh, going forward. Gold is a, is a different animal, but uh, we do see that uh, it's necessary uh, in a portfolio. Um, it is going to have a day, uh, but just not today. <laughs> so we are already over an hour and I wish that we had three <laughs> to, to discuss all of this because you all are such a source of insight into these markets. And I'm just really grateful that you would share the time with us. Sure, Cameron. Thank you, Cameron. The preceding content is for informational purposes only and based on information available when created. It is not an offer or solicitation, nor is it tax or legal advice. It does not consider your financial circumstances, objectives or risk tolerance, and could be unsuitable for you. Fuelpoint Private encourages you to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions.